Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, COVID-19 and product liability. Hanson Horn and Gary Casimir of The Cook Group speak with Jordan Rutsky of Merson Law. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Hanson Horn. All right, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us here tonight. My name is Hanson Horn, and I'm a partner with The Cook Group here in New York City. Uh, we're here as part of the New York City Bar Products Liability Committee, and we're presenting you with this podcast tonight. And, and most importantly, let me get to my two esteemed guests that I have. I have uh, Mr. Jordan Rudsky here with me. Jor- Jordan is a personal injury attorney here based in New York. He's been practicing for over 16 years, and he's a partner with Merson Law. He's handled over the years a variety of complex personal injury cases, uh, including medical malpractice, property, pro, excuse me, product liability litigation, uh, and here even recently he has worked uh, and represented plaintiffs and on behalf of sexual assault victims, including the uh, through the litigation against the New York Department of Education and the Boy Scouts of America. Prior to joining Merson Law. Uh, Jordan worked at a Midtown Manhattan firm uh, for 15 years where he rose from associate to partner. There he also handled a variety of personal injury claims and uh, as well as management of the firm's complex personal injury litigation. Now also with me is Gary Casimir. Gary is a founding partner of the Cook Group and is based here in New York City. Gary is one of our premier trial attorneys at the Cook Group. He handles a wide range of product liability cases throughout New York, New York State. He's tried cases and served as trial counsel in jurisdictions including California, New Jersey, Washington, and Washington, D.C. He's represented Fortune 500 companies' uh, product liability cases. And before entering private practice, Gary worked for over a decade as an assistant district attorney with the Bronx DA's office. Uh, through Gary's trial experience, he has also earned positions as a frequent legal analyst for MSNBC, Fox News Channel, as well as Court TV. He's been seen on the Fox nationally syndicated television show, Power of Attorney, where he represented litigants before a national audience. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about something that's been a hot topic on all of our news broadcasts here in the state of New York. Um, involving our governor, Governor Andrew Cuomo, and no, ladies and gentlemen, we are not talking about the sexual harassment <laughs> allegations. That is a conversation and a discussion for another day. <laughs> We're talking about COVID-19 and the impact it has had on our nursing home community, something that has affected uh, in some way or another almost everyone. Uh, as we've seen throughout the, the nightly and morning newscasts, uh, the, the death tolls uh, related to COVID-19 and associated with nursing homes are just uh, piling up by the day. I, I think at this point it's over 12,000 uh, possible deaths uh, related to, to COVID-19 in the nursing homes and maybe more. What we want to talk about here today and what we're here to talk about is something called the PREP Act. The PREP Act is the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. And in short, this is something that uh, limits the liability for losses related to certain measures for treating and administering, well, COVID-19 in this case. I, I'm going to let these gentlemen explain it a little more to you. Gary, can you tell us 
you know, a little more, what exactly is the PREP Act? Well, I mean, so let's talk a little bit about its declaration. As a result of the pandemic and, uh, you know, the health emergency that uh, the U.S. was going through, uh, the uh, Public Readiness and Emergency Prepared Act uh, and the Department of Health and Human Services made a declaration. And it begins, uh, you know, in, in sum and substance, as a result of this, uh, the, the PREP Act, um, certain people are granted immunity and the federal courts have jurisdiction over the type of cases brought that are related to COVID countermeasures or, counter counter or countermeasures to prevent injury. Um, and, and I guess lots of people have, uh, have described it as sweeping, but I just want to talk about the statute itself, just so that we understand. Uh, it, the purpose was to encourage an expeditious development and deployment of medical countermeasures during the public health emergency. And what the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act authorizes the Secretary of Health and Human Services to limit legal liability for losses relating to administration of medical countermeasures as such as diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines. Uh, it came into effect on February 4th, 2020. Uh, the Secretary of Health and Hospital, I'm sorry, Health and Human Services invoked the PrEP Act and declared coronavirus, coronavirus disease 2019 to be a public health emergency warranting liability protections for covered countermeasures. Well, that's interesting. What does that mean for us as attorneys Jordan, and uh, well, not only us as attorneys, but for those uh, every, uh, everyday people not in the legal field out there. That is a good question. By conferring immunity to these covered entities, which realistically is anyone who is administering, using, manufacturing, distributing, selling, pretty much anyone who is involved with these covered countermeasures, uh, the, the, the PREP Act essentially limits the rights of American citizens, individuals who are injured because of these countermeasures. And I think we'll go into this today, but the interpretation of the PREP Act, in particular involving COVID, has changed as recently, really the big change was in January of this year. Um, and that has largely expanded that to protect in, and confer immunity to anyone who is administering, using the whole list, um, and, and also people who don't use and administer these things. That, that maybe have a plan in place, but don't do it or withhold these type of treatments to people. So, you know, how it affects the American people, not so great. Uh, how it affects these companies and uh, doctors and, and facilities that are making these drugs, making the masks, things like that. Uh, I think it's, it's good for them. Um, whether it serves its purpose, ultimately, I think is one of the things I wanted to discuss today. I mean, ostensibly the purpose is to encourage the, the use of these countermeasures. Uh, but with the expansion, I think an argument can be made that it actually encourages that these things are not used properly um, if they're used at all. I mean, certainly it's an element that protects these entities, uh, which will encourage the use of these countermeasures. But the expansion, I think, actually backfires and makes the Preparedness Act, uh, the PREP Act, uh, really problematic. Well, that's interesting. You talk about the the you know, fairness that affords uh, different groups of people and, and businesses, um, but I want to get into that before we talk about that. Well, what has been the litigation so far? Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> with reference, I mean, I think the case has evolved a lot since the initial uh, litigation has started with regard to 
uh, COVID-related cases and the implication of this uh, statute. I mean, if we look at um, one of the first cases that was discussed uh, that took place back in August of 2020, that's the estate of Magalioli versus Andover Subdicate Rehab Center. In that case, plaintiffs were suing a, uh, a facility in New Jersey for negligence, wrongful death, and medical malpractice brought on, on behalf of residents and patients at defendant's nursing care facilities. The plaintiffs were a group of individuals who had died while in defendant's care, and uh, allegedly as a result of the fatal failure to ex exercise due care with respect to coronavirus infections. The defendants removed the case, citing the PREP Act, to federal court on the theory that adjudication of their claim of statutory immunity under the PREP Act created a federal question. And that simply just means that at all cases of this nature, in order to decide if it falls under the PREP Act, has to go to federal court. This is one of the first cases that had made a decision in this area. And for them, in the beginning at this time, in August 2020, in reaching its conclusion, to remand back to state court was appropriate. The district court ruminated on what might fall under the PREP Act scope, noting, here by contrast, the complaints do not allege that plaintiffs' injuries arose from defendants' administration to them of vaccines or medicine, or for that matter, protective gear, activities that the PREP Act promotes by offering immunity. Citing the statute, the court emphasized that the PREP Act covers qualified pandemic and epidemic products, products including drugs and of the Federal Food and Drug Administration Cosmetic Act, and biological products. So in this instance, it it, it seemed to have created, a, uh, early on in August 2020, the court seemed to found that it immunity wasn't as broad as people think it is. It's limited. And if you can properly plead a complaint to cite the failure to provide or the negligence in providing care, it was enough. That it wasn't the product itself that was defective. It was in the product care. So this was the beginning. Now, and Jordan, I think I heard you reference this. And Gary, you just pointed out this was in the beginning and in roughly August of 2020. But since then, there's been a, a change in, in this stance. Am I right about that? Absolutely. It happened in January of this year. Um, and before we get there, I just want to add in some of it. Obviously, Craig did a great job of explaining what happened in the Maglioli case. Uh, I just want to add in a little more context. There were 50 patients that died as a result of COVID at these facilities. The allegations were that masks were only provided to the registered nurses. They weren't provided to the support staff. They didn't file our proper protocols. They didn't, uh, they didn't monitor outside visitors. And so the result is you have 50 people who are obviously uh, in a situation where they require around-the-clock care and they're exposed to COVID and they die. And they bring this case claiming not that they were injured by the use or administration of a countermeasure, but that they were injured because they failed to use a countermeasure, that being masks, proper protocols, and so forth. And I think, listen, I think the court got it right here when they found that the PrEP Act wasn't intended to protect this type of behavior. And they actually quote, and this is, this is a quote from the case, the court quotes the basis for the, for the act, or at least what they believe to be the basis. Uh, and I, the, the quote is, its evident purpose is to embolden caregivers, permitting them to certain encouraged forms of care, and then in parentheses listed COVID countermeasures, with the assurance that they will not face liability for having done so. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I take from what you say, and I think you said this, you think the court's got it right. Well, I, I think so. I, look, I mean, I'm always in favor of allowing people to bring litigation where it's appropriate, all right? And, and so the way I see it is the, the PREP Act should be 
narrowly tailored to effectuate its purpose. Gary, I have a feeling you might have a different take. Yeah, I do. I think I, it, I, I'm, a, you know, I, I don't disagree with Jordan that I, I when somebody has a claim, uh, it, normally I would say they absolutely have a right to bring it forth. I do believe a pandemic of this kind, where there's an invisible threat, where it's almost impossible to determine, you know, who caused someone to get a disease such as uh, COVID-19, and with it being something so novel and so new and so uh, prevalent. It's not unfair to create some sort of liability if you want society to be open, because there is no safe. There is no safe um, standard here when it comes to COVID, uh, in my opinion. And we can wear masks, uh, we can social distance, and you can still get it. And you can easily uh, find liability for failing to be more strict about mask wearing. You can be far more, you can find negligence or fault with someone who is not taking a temperature immediately when somebody walked in, but they gave them a mask anyway. I think the purpose of the rule was to get through a pandemic without millions of lawsuits. There were 500,000 Americans who died. And you can find fault in, uh, and I think what the government was afraid of um, to a certain extent was if you just let liability, the normal negligence liability lay here, the number of lawsuits would be insurmountable. So the court, I think, I think, and I don't disagree with the court's initial finding in Margul is that there was a sense, and this is one of the reasons why we're covering this, Jordan and Hanson, this was thought of as a product liability statute. There was a sense that we're talking about manufacturing and a product being defective. And there was this idea that maybe the government was doing this to protect 3M and so they can make a lot of masks. Uh, that you can make a, a PPP, uh, what do you call that, a harness for the nurses, the doctors together, the face mask, and, and, and it's expanded. And, you know, I, and we're going to be able to go through that. And there's been several cases. It wasn't only that case that was interpreted favorably to, for the plaintiff. I think Jordan, you know, there was the Sherrod case that, uh, that's in there and Gunter case. And it didn't take a turn until later. And I'm not sure it's uh, until way later in January, but I think what you found here is the nature of countermeasures are not in the product itself, but in the uh, administration of that product. So, for example, it's okay to give you a mask, but if, you know, I don't have to give you a mask to tell you to stay six foot apart, right? I think the administration, so it, it, does, it does make sense that it's beyond just the product itself because a preemptive action could include just saying, okay, only six people in the room can fit and properly social distance. There's no product involved. But if you want to bring a lawsuit because, oh, I messed up, I brought a seventh person in and I'm negligent because I knew that that, that would be too much doubt and prejudice. That's, that's a good point. Uh, my response to that is simply that all those points that you brought up go to whether a plaintiff can successfully establish his claim. So for example, that example of the six to seven people situation, I, you know, I can't speak for everyone. I wouldn't take that case because I know there's an issue with causation, right? Same thing with the medical malpractice claims. You know, in order to win these cases, I need to show that there was a standard of care that was breached. Now, interestingly enough, one thing that Gary pointed out was how much of a, a how much time, a long time had passed between this decision and, and the change in January. And in most situations, the, the actual span of time, less than a year, wouldn't be looked at as a long period of time. But we all know this last year was unprecedented. So he's right. That was a long period of time in the context of the development of this area of law as it related to COVID. Right? But, uh, you know, I still believe that all those 
you know, I, I can appreciate the concept of wanting to encourage the these companies to create vaccines, to create masks and things like that. I, I personally think that the real way to incentivize this type of behavior is quite frankly, the free market. I mean, the reality is that the expectation for the next year is that Johnson & Johnson is projected to earn $10 billion on their vaccine, that Moderna is expected to earn, I believe it was $18.4 billion, and that Pfizer was $15 billion. And I might have the Pfizer and Moderna mixed up, but the result is there's an over $40 billion pie here. And I don't think realistically speaking that any of these companies would sit on the sideline when there's this much money at stake. Now, there's also, you know, when it comes to the doctors, I like to think that there's also an altruistic part of what they do, right? But there's also a financial aspect. So I can't imagine as many doctors who would refuse to treat a patient who has COVID because they're worried about being sued because of both the financial aspect of what they do and also the altruistic part. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to make clear today, at least from my perspective as a plaintiff's attorney, is that while the PREP Act sounds like it makes sense and the justification makes sense, that the way it is, it is being used is too broad. It should be dealt with in a very narrow window. So for example, just breaking things down in a product liability sense, when you deal with uh, the vaccines as an example, you know, I can understand a protection for defective design because we have these medications being rushed. It's super important that we get this done quickly and they're being approved by the FDA. So one could argue it's not that different than federal preemption of medical devices, where if it goes through a certain process by the FDA, you can't bring a claim of negligent design, but you can still bring a claim of negligent manufacture. So hypothetically, should we protect a pharmaceutical company that designs a good vaccine, but then when they manufacture it, they're not cleaning their facilities right, there's cross-contamination and people get sick? Is that the type of behavior that we want to protect? I agree we want to protect the efforts to make these medications, to, to develop them. But my concern is, are we trying to protect the misuse of these medic? Are we trying to protect improper manufacture? Or, or and, and this is something that they bring up in Maglioli when they're, when they're discussing the PrEP Act. According to the PrEP Act, it covers slip and falls at a facility that is administering medication. And to me, that is wild because, you know, can a, can a hospital pour a bucket on the floor, watch people slip and break their hips all day long and do nothing and have no liability? If they're giving people the vaccine for, for COVID, then under the PrEP Act, arguably, and I, I think the answer is yes, they can do that. And, and is that the type of behavior we're trying to protect? Now, that's an extreme example, obviously. But that's my point. This needs to be more narrowly tailored to effectuate its purpose and not unnecessarily limit the rights of Americans to bring lawsuits. Let me let me just respond um, to a certain extent. I I I do not see uh, an inst- I, I I understand why th- th- there's some sense that maybe a slip and fall would be covered by the prep act. I just I, I don't see it functionally. If if you give the example you gave, and maybe it's an extreme example where somebody left uh, a floor you know slippery wet and they knew that you know it was complained about and seven hours later it's still there. I don't, I don't. I think it'd be very difficult for a case like that where it's not about a person getting COVID, but it's the injuries they sustain from falling would fall under that circumstance. I, you know, there's always a slippery slope about how much liability protection you want to give and who do you want to give it to. But I also think the other part of this is they're looking at it from a perspective of uh, maybe on a policy side, uh, especially the past administration that we were in. 
in order to, like you said early on, in order to get people to give out stuff to keep people safe, in order to get people actively opening their businesses, uh, business again, you know, take, taking care of people, you have to try to relieve them of the fear of uh, liability for COVID-related illness. I came to the supermarket, and I think that's where I got COVID because I do nothing else but I go to the supermarket, I pick up my groceries, and I go home. So uh, there's no other place I could have gotten it. I must have gotten it there, and the opportunity for investigation, a, play, a, a firm may find that they were not enforcing the mass. So, and they were actually giving people tastings. Uh, the, you know, uh, I, I, I saw the staff not wearing the mask all the time. Uh, I saw them not enforcing it over the nose. You can easily make a claim in that instance for negligence. And, and that's where I think it's difficult. And I think that's why they want the law to be all encompassing because there is a fear that no matter what I do, it's not going to be enough because you can always find fault in the administration of something like this, especially when you're dealing with people. And then there's the other people that come in and you get, offer them a mask and they're like, I don't want a mask. No, but you have to have a way mask. I don't want. And then they take the mask and they put it on there. They intentionally disregard what you're doing. So now the question, because should you send security to go get them? We didn't send security. You don't even know if that person gave you COVID. You know what I mean? But there's enough there for the uh, uh, for a judge to say what is the question of fact if it wasn't for that. May I just clarify? Sure. The, the supermarket's not protected though, unless they're using or administering COVID vaccines. Or you know, that's an interesting point because I, I suppose if they're selling masks, I wonder if that would count in some way because they're involved in the sale. And the law is written so broadly. Perhaps they would be protected if they sell a mask in the store. But I think offhand that they would be uh, subject to litigation. But also that I, I go back to the idea that I wouldn't take that case because how could I prove the person got it at the supermarket? Well, Jordan, that's a that's a you know a good point. I, I think you bring up a good or both of you bring up a good point that you know COVID nineteen is a unique situation. The, the Prep Act in itself is fairly new, considering it was I think two thousand five when it was uh, initially implemented, and is rarely you know, invoked, it's only invoked in, in states of uh, health emergency. And it's sort of an evolving door of sorts. So from the, you know, supermarket, uh, where do we see this going? Where do we see this litigation going? And it seems like it's kind of the the the, the umbrella of the PrEP Act is kind of uh, growing, as mentioned, from August to January. Uh, where do you gentlemen see, see this going to? I think we got to talk about Garcia. I mean, uh, good with Garcia case, right, Jordan? I think that's yeah. the the most recent decision here, and that may give us some guidance as to where it's going. I think um, I'm just going to give some background. We can go back and forth. It's a California case. Plaintiffs filed a suit against Well Tower, Sunrise, and Calabrese, alleging three courses of action under California law: elder abuse and neglect, wrongful death, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Well Tower and Sunrise operate a senior living facility which is not a medical facility. It's a senior living facility, which uh, Calvary C manages. Garcia was admitted as a resident to the facility in August of 2017. He was also a resident of the facility during the COVID-19 pandemic and was at extremely high risk for complications or death related to the disease, having had a history of heart attacks, strokes, hypertension. Despite this, at the start of the pandemic, he was in relatively good health and spirits, mentally alert, oriented to person, place, and time. At the start of the pandemic, and even after California governors issued a state of emergency within the state, the allegations are the facility failed to implement appropriate infection control measures or follow local and public health guidelines in preparing or preventing COVID-19 spread. 
For example, while the facility initially allowed but discouraged visitors, it initially allowed them. The facility soon reversed course, of course. Defendants also sent mixed messages regarding the availability of PPP equipment, later indicating that a lack of appropriate personnel uh, on protective equipment, and on May 15, 2020, later stating that the facility had, had insufficient equipment and then sufficient equipment. So in that case, it, they were making out a case for saying that it failed to provide you know, in, enough PPP and equipment. So here comes this court, though, unlike previous courts. Well, let me just say Garcia passed away sometime on July 3rd and a lawsuit ensued. And this is for long for that. So here's the issue. The standard before the court to make a determination, right? The case was sued. They moved, um, they um, brought it back to federal court. They made a motion. Back. So there was an application for remand. The federal courts are limited jurisdiction and defendants could remove the civil action from state court to federal court only if the federal court has subject matter jurisdiction. And, and in this instance, the subject matter jurisdiction would only happen if it fell under the PREP Act because there was no diversity of, uh, of plaintiff and defendant in this instance, and it didn't involve a federal question. And so in this instance, what happened here is the court decided that even though one of the issues that the plaintiffs argued was this facility was not a medical facility, it did not have a medical license, it was a senior living facility. And the court determined that that, that does not absolve, uh, that does not remove them from the protections of the PREP Act. And that the allegations, which were similar to allegations that had been pled before, which was a failure to provide enough uh, protect countermeasures, uh, were not enough to get passed. In this instance, the court found that even though the, as a plan manager or an organizer of it, it was co considered a covered person, and that was some facility that was under the protections of the PREP Act. And I think what we found here is that the court is telling us that after interpreting the, um, there was two bases for that, and I'm going to let Jordan go into that, but part of it was the health, the Attorney General's letter clarifying what the position is. And I think what the court interpreted it to be much broadly, it found that it's not just the devices themselves, but the way they decide to manage the devices, that that's protected too. And it's not necessarily a healthcare facility it has to, a doctor has to do it. And so I think this is a symbol of where this case is going. And I think that it, it would apply to the grocery store. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a that's a complete 180 from where we were in August with Magliolia. Am I right about that? You're 100% correct. In the Garcia case, the court strongly uh, kept citing back to the general counsel's advisory opinion. It's 21-01. And that was issued on January 8th, 2021. And this advisory opinion turned the law on its head. What it said is basically that all the prior decisions stating that failure to use or administer were not covered by the PREP Act were in fact covered by the PREP Act, provided that someone was in that facility was using or administering this medication, even if it wasn't to the plaintiff. And, you know, if in the very basic way, that makes sense if you're dealing with scarce resources. So let's take a very simple example. You have two patients, you have one vaccine, right? It makes sense in that scenario to protect the medical care provider if they have to make a judgment call and provide it to the person most in need. And so the person who doesn't get the medication, I can understand on some level protecting that facility from that claim. I think the protection should occur in it by immunity that should be resolved by allowing to bring a case and have it as affirmative defense, for example, as opposed to preempting the claim altogether. But at least I understand the, the thrust of that argument. 
and, and the reasoning for it, because with their scarce resources, you know, having to it, it, deciding allocation is part of what should be covered by the PREP Act. Uh, the, the concern is that in that same advisory opinion, there's a, a reference that you can still bring a claim if there's a complete dereliction of duty. If the entity does nothing, then you can still bring a claim. And, and literally it's written that this is a small hole with which to wiggle to avoid complete preemption. And quite frankly, the way I read it implies that plaintiffs will figure this out and start changing their complaints. And that's why this must be dealt with by the federal courts so that they can cut off these claims before they even get that far. So, you know, while I understand the argument of allocation, it, it narrows the, the, the claims that can be brought to essentially nothing, except for a, a facility that does literally nothing. So arguably, if I was a defense attorney and I had a facility that only bought a small box of masks, as an example, I would say, well, they're protected, even though they only bought one small box, you know, and they have a huge facility, <clears throat> they had a plan in place. It's an allocation situation. And my argument to that is, okay, allow that to use that as a defense to the case that they have immunity. But uh, by the same token, I'd like to know what were they doing with the rest of their money? Or how do they make these decisions to allocate? And you never even get that far. And Garcia is an example of that. You don't get to any fact finding, any discovery. The case is cut off at its knees. And Jordan, I want to bring you, you bring up a good point about you know the allocation of masks, and I want to kind of yeah that, that sparks a thought in my head, and I want to get get both of your takes on this. I know here in New York we have uh, strict laws requiring whether it's restaurants or gyms to you know in certain situations provide their patrons with masks. Do either of you foresee that that in a case like that? those types of businesses being covered by the, uh, by the PrEP Act? I, I think it's possible. Um, a, as an academic pursuit, I think it's possible to, to say how those entities would be covered because they are using or administering a, a covered countermeasure, that being masks. I think, realistically speaking, no one's bringing those claims. I just, I just don't see a scenario where anyone can accurately trace where a person got COVID-19, uh, I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's exceptions, like if you know there's a super spreader event, but we shouldn't be protecting that super spreader event anyway. So I, I think you're, you make a good point that maybe there is room to ex for this law to be interpreted so that it covers, you know, unexpected defendants, would-be defendants. Um, but I, I, I just wonder if that's actually something that is more of an interesting conversation as opposed to a practical one. Uh, I, I see it differently. I think the um, I think that's exactly where this is going. I think, the, you know, I, I think the way it was defined both by the OGC, uh, where they say only instances of nonfeasance, uh, where the defendant's culpability is a result of its failure to make any decision whatsoever, thereby abandoning its duty to act as a program plan or other covered person. I think that completely takes the language out of products, medical personnel, drugs. I think what it's what it's saying is, and 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 I, 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 I and I think it's for the policy reason that Jordan just mentions. There's there are attorneys who won't take the case, right? That would say there's no way I can prove that he got it at the supermarket, even though he says he doesn't go anywhere else. But there are a lot of attorneys who would say, well, he said he didn't go anywhere else, and he, there's no place else he could have gotten it. He goes home. He goes. That's it. There was no other place that he was around a lot of people. And if you allow that to be a question of fact, it gets to a jury. 
And the unfairness of it, I think Jordan points out by saying there's no way you could prove that. But Jordan and I both know that the court system is more likely than not. It's not an exact, you know, definitive answer. And as long as you can get an expert to get in there and say, well, based on the risk analysis and the actuarial levels, if he never was with anybody else and he only went home and he goes to the supermarket, he probably got it from the supermarket. And it wouldn't be unfair analysis to say that. But at the same time, to, to now start questioning, to now, the, the idea of it is in a global pandemic to save the, 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 these facilities to a certain extent, there is some fairness in it because it would shut down. If I can't give you, if the act of giving you a mask and spacing you out leads me to become, uh, uh, it causes me more problems because I didn't do enough. I didn't police you. I didn't separate you. Then it, I, I'd rather not even open because the liability is so great. We're talking about death. These are wrongful death actions for some people. and could be for a lot of people if we're talking about senior citizens. So I believe there is some there was justification to the limitation of liability because of the nature of what we're dealing with. There'll come a time where it won't be there anymore, but I, I, I don't think that now is the time for, you know, an opportunity for a hundred thousand claims of this nature taking over this, the judicial system. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know Jordan's firm and I, I understand they would take cases that are more reasonably tied, but I think what the, what the system is trying to protect is to keep it operating to a certain extent and to make you do things like get, get, give out masks and give out um, sanitizer. And here's where I come out. There are places in Florida where people are refusing to give out masks and don't require masks. And I'm wondering if those places, they, there's an, that's a sense of circumstances where they would not be protected, right? I mean, if you're a business owner, for example, outside of practice of law, I own a restaurant, right? And we give out masks to people who show up without a mask, right? And we have hand sanitizer. The law requires me to do that in New York City. You're required, they come in the inspect, they have a COVID, what they call a COVID-19 inspection for restaurants. And they'll come and they'll say, do you have sanitizer? Where is it? Do you have masks? How many masks do you have at the, at the bar? If I come in without a mask and you have to show them that you have all these COVID-19 countermeasures. Are you having a log? Do you have temperature thermostatic readers for the people are you taking that where's the names and you're doing all these things so they're expecting you by law to put these countermeasures in place part of it is law um, regulatorily enforced the other part is voluntary you know the, the amount of mass you know i'm sorry the, the type of mask you buy and stuff like that but then you have the social distancing protocols and then you have people who get up after a drink and forget to put on their mask right or they don't like being told what to do around their family. You'd be surprised the kind of, you know, uh, behavior. So I think with it, I think there is fairness in it. I think it's always hard when somebody's died, when your child has died or your parent has died, for you not to have some recourse, you know? And I don't know what the answer is, but clearly I can understand why the statute could be justified. All right, Gary, that's, that's interesting. And that makes me want to ask, well, Jordan, you know, what options are there out there for, you know, for the people? Well, I'll start by saying there's very few realistic options for some people. There's definitely going to be people who fall through the cracks. But there's there's two avenues you can you can go forward with if you have a, a claim involving uh, the negligent use or administration or injuries caused by the use of or administration of any of these uh, covered countermeasures. The first is there's a cutout for willful misconduct, and that is defined specifically by the Prep Act as involving. It, acts that are intentionally to achieve a wrongful purpose, 
knowingly without legal or factual justification in disregard of a known or obvious risk that is so great as to make it highly probable that the harm will outweigh the benefit. And I think that's a very high bar to reach. And, and equally problematic is that if you're going to claim a willful misconduct in, for example, a medical malpractice case, you're immediately going to lose your insurance coverage, more likely than not. Right. So, you know, and, he, and this is one of the things I, as I as I look through this topic concerned me, there's a lot of protection here for insurance companies and for medical malpractice insurance companies, because if you can't even bring the claim, then they don't have the defense costs. Whereas if you bring the claim, it's illegitimate. The doctors are still protected, but the insurance companies are not for the defense costs. So that's one. And, and just to be clear, to bring that first, you have to submit your claim to the countermeasures injury compensation program that was created by uh, by the declarations. And we, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But after you pass on the offered uh, funds, you can get through that program. You then have to bring the case in the District of Columbia. And you, the standard of proof is clear and convincing evidence. And you can only bring it if your claim involves death or serious injury. And, and that involves, for serious injury, life-threatening injuries or results in uh, or requires medical or surgical inter intervention to preclude permanent impairment of a body function or results in permanent damage to a body structure. So that's a high bar in a foreign jurisdiction with potentially no insurance coverage and a high standard of proof. The other scenario is you file a claim with a countermeasures injury compensation program. And that program, both of these things need to be done within a year of the use or administration of the countermeasure. And this is where the rule change is problematic because the form for the countermeasures injury compensation program asks what countermeasure was used or administered and caused your injury. And if the answer is none, you have a problem, I would assume, right? I haven't had to deal with that in a specific context, but, and then they also ask what date was it administered or used? And again, if you have none, you're probably gonna get rejected. So. You know, the payouts under the countermeasures injury compensation program also is worth noting. You can get fully reimbursed, unlimited, for any unreimbursable medical expenses. So if you have insurance, you're not going to get anything. But if you're not or for something for somebody's not covered, you'll get paid back for that. You'll get lost employment income, two thirds of your income up to $50,000 per year until the age of 65. So if you're working and you're over 65, well, that's not good for you. And there's a death benefit that's tied to the public safety officers benefits program where it changes every year, but I believe the current amount is slightly more than $370,000. Uh, and there's a priority order as, as to who gets paid in the event of death. And so this leads me to who falls through the cracks. And I think there's really three groups that concern me. The, the first is that as we've been discussing individuals for whom countermeasures were never provided due to error or omission, right? they likely are not going to recover under the countermeasures injury compensation program because they can't point to what countermeasure injured them and they likely won't be able to claim willful misconduct. The second is individuals who suffer severe changes in their lives that are not purely economic in nature, right? Because even if they can cover, recover under the, the countermeasures injury compensation program, that might not fully compensate them for harm caused by potentially other people. And the last is the simple, simple negligence victims. You know, I know, I know we talked earlier about questioning whether slip and fall would count. I think if you read the prep act, I think they may even cite it specifically, although I'd have to double check. Um, I'd be concerned for those people as well. Um, and what the solution is, honestly, I think when the, when the advisory opinion was issued, it was, I think, two weeks before the, the secretary of health and human services left office. 
Um, and uh, that, that, that was Alex Azar. And we're currently, as we speak, they're going through the, the confirmation process for the new secretary, uh, Javier Becerra. And I'm hoping, and maybe this is naive, but I'm hoping that that change of guard will also result in a new advisory opinion. Um, I, I, whether that occurs or not, we have to wait and see. Uh, but that's my hope for the future. Yeah, I, I think it's possible. The regulatory schemes are affected by policy, and they may, there's no doubt, might have been a more protective, business-oriented policy coming from the previous Trump administration than the Biden administration. Uh, the, the, those things are possible in terms of change. But first, I think I want to go back and comment, if I might. I think the willful misconduct and intentional misconduct and disregard for normal risk, I think you can make the argument that um, if you have an instance like that, is it possible, let me put it to you this way, where you can formulate a complaint to say that as a program planner, what they failed, the countermeasure that they put in place did not was not sufficient in terms of distancing. I guess this is kind of interesting. They did nothing. So is it easier to, you know, by them doing nothing, saying the countermeasures did not comply with six feet, the countermeasures did not comply, and that, that's, that was their plan. Is it possible to say that that was their plan? The countermeasures was nothing, and that, you know, in effect, is can you make that argument? Is that something that I, you think that could possibly fall under there to get you compensation? Yeah, well, I think if you claim that they did literally nothing, mm -hmm. you, you may be fine. You might be that that small hole with which to wiggle, right, is that they did absolutely nothing. I, I think at this point, I think it's exceedingly rare that any facility would even fit under that. But hypothetically, I think it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. The problem with the willful misconduct language is that it requires a wrongful purpose. And so since we've been talking about this, uh, since you first asked me about the podcast, I've been trying to rack my brains to come up with a, a possible fact pattern that would fit under willful misconduct with such a high standard. And the only thing I could come up with is if a facility was hoarding materials to sell on the black market or maybe for their own personal use, but not sharing it with their staff uh, or, or for that matter with their, with their uh, residents if it's a live-in facility. Uh, those cases, I think, are still viable, potentially. I wonder if there's going to be insurance coverage there, uh, and you still have that clear and convincing standard, you know, that it's highly and substantially more probably true than not. Um, but I've been thinking about this a lot, and that's the only scenario I can think of that really fits under that very narrow exception. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like in, in the future ahead of us, uh, there's going to be a lot to sort through and to really see where this goes. I, I know one thing that is for certain, we hope that the numbers keep getting better, uh, that the cases keep de decreasing, and uh, that we as a country continue to, to move in the right direction and get ahead of this thing. I think from the legal standpoint, we're gonna have plenty to talk about in the coming, coming weeks, coming months, and uh, we will be doing that again for our viewers and uh, we will see where this thing goes. Everyone, we appreciate it tonight. Thank Any you. final words? Uh, no, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a good time. Look forward to talking about whether or not change does come about through the Biden administration. And if it takes another direction, I hope you have us back on. Uh, I definitely will, gentlemen. I appreciate you being here tonight. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.